0: On today's episode of The Deep Dive, I'm joined by Jahan Manton and Boy Win Gao, who are the co-founders of Project Inkblot. Project Inkblot is a team of designers and futurists who partner with companies to build equitable products, services, and content using their proprietary framework, Design for Diversity. Jahan began her career in advertising and marketing at Time Out New York and later moved into the editorial world as the associate editor for Beyond Race magazine. She earned a BA in communications and culture from Clark University and is the recipient of the Kate Spade and Company Fellowship at the New Museum Incubator. She's a proud native New Yorker and currently resides in Brooklyn. I always got to give an extra shout out to all my Brooklyn peeps as also a (laughs) overly proud native New Yorker and Brooklynite. You're so
1: obnoxious Um, about it.
0: We are obnoxious about it. Um, I respect that. (laughs) I love that. Buin is a hybrid thinker, creator, and builder. She's traversed many worlds through work, meandering through unexpected crevices and subcultures, such as once live, working in a floral wholesale warehouse, servicing primarily funeral homes and churches, to coaching young people in juvenile detention centers throughout New York City, to being the owner and editor-in-chief of a global jazz publication, partnering with legendary people and institutions like the Miles Davis estate. And this is something that I was particularly concerned about a hot sauce junkie and jewelry designer now residing in deep bear and fox populated woods of Western Massachusetts. As a city kid, I've seen recently a lot of bear, no fox and raccoons the other day in the backyard. So there's a lot of stuff going on what? here in Brooklyn, but we don't have bear in Brooklyn. <laughs> the bear I saw was upstate. So I want to welcome you both to the deep dive. Thanks so much for being on the show with me.
2: Thanks, philip Thank That you. was great.
0: I got through it, right? <laughs> you <laughs> you got
2: did. It. <laughs> it's a mouthful.
0: <laughs> you know, usually when folks give me like bios and stuff, and I'm always like, I, you know, I'm fine with every bio, but they're usually like very much like, this is my title. This is what I've done. And it's very mm-hmm. like official. Mm-hmm. But I wanted to read a bio that actually has some verve and personality. I was like, I got to give these their full due.
1: Well, thank <laughs> <Right>? you. Yeah.
0: <laughs> it's like, why else are we here if not for verve? <laughs> it's deserved praise. It's deserved praise. So we got a lot to cover because I think the work that you're both doing at Project Inkblot is important work and it's work that is necessary, but it's also work that's complex. So I want to give us the time, use the time that we have to really dive into it and no pun intended. And Uen, I want to start with you to give me a a sense beyond the bio of the origin story behind Inkblot. You both come from different backgrounds, different worlds. The bios explain that. So how did you join forces and start on this journey?
2: Yeah, well, Johanna and I are both pretty eccentric and unique (laughs) individuals. So I think that that's how we vibed. We both were editors at a music and culture magazine. And so we didn't really know each other that well. We just met up and we were like, hey, you seem cool. Right. And I was doing a whole bunch of stuff beyond being a journalist. I had like five jobs. Jahan had just finished traveling Latin America for nine months and came back to the U.S. and was dealing with also like family stuff, just a lot of dynamics. And we just sat down one afternoon in Brooklyn and Fort Greene and had a tea and started talking about the things that we really care about. And I think it just clicked where we were like, we need to do something together. And both of us had a deep desire to just kind of do our own thing and not work for the man, not work for anybody and call our own shots. And that seemed really alluring and exciting to us. And we didn't know what the hell we were doing. So we just kind of met up in that context. And we've built so many things together since then. But I think the key thing to say is that we didn't have a specific thing that we clicked on to say, hey, let's build this thing. Here are the parameters. Here's what it looks like. Here's like... I want to build a XYZ type of business. Like we didn't know that, but what we knew about is that we cared about culture. We cared about people. We're not official anthropologists like yourself, but we're kind of, you know, like to call ourselves people who care about anthropology and are always looking at culture and what that means. And so media and tech and that sort of thing was really appealing to us. So that was the first moment that we clicked And then from there, we've built so many things from we had an online magazine. That was our first thing that we did called Culture Files. And that led us to doing in-person workshops in Brooklyn. And then we were like, we got to do something even bigger, which led us into consulting. And then that led us down a whole other journey that I'll pass it to Johanna to share a little bit about. But through all of that, it's like, what the hell is the book (laughs) whatever. I forget the name of the book now, right? But we went through all of these different crevices to get to the point where we're like, okay, this is what it is. But I think what's dope about both of us is that we're always curious. And we're always, once we get to the destination or what we think is the destination, it's never really that. And we're constantly trying to find our own authenticity and ways of providing value to the world.
1: I think the book you were thinking was The Alchemist.
2: Yeah, duh. <laughs> I was like, why could I not <laughs> think the name in the moment? You know, when you're put on the spot. Yeah. But yeah. yeah.
1: Cause you know, the alchemist, he like goes on this whole journey to come back to right where he started. That is the story of our process. That's how we process. You know what I mean? It's like yeah. we're it's this continuous kind of path. But yeah, I'll say that that all of that work led us to I don't want to say we fell into it, but we just started working with companies consulting on building programs so our ethos is that if you're a human you're a designer and you mentioned earlier Philip, like titles you know and like these you know, bios i mean even listening to your own bio is like kind of cringy you know what I mean? but it's like the nature of the of that kind of writing exercise but um we don't really care about titles and we don't care about credentials and we don't care about those fancy things per se And we just fell into this world where we were starting to design different programs. So yeah, we think that everyone is a designer. If you're a human, you're a designer, whether design is in your title, whether you went to design school, like designing is a creative process and we're always doing it whether we're aware of it or not. And so when we fell into working with companies and we were designing in real life programs, we just started to see these gaps and, we cannot see those gaps because they're inherent to actually at the core of who we are as individuals, as work partners, as dear friends, like in terms of the folks on our team, like it's core to our being that we're always thinking about equity and we're thinking about who's missing, who's being excluded, who might be harmed. And we just saw that in the making, in the designing and the creation and the strategizing of these programs, critical questions weren't being asked. And so inequitable processes will create inequitable outcomes. And so we started to think about like, how can we intervene? How can we start to shift and redesign the system so that the process doesn't inevitably result in like racial inequities, for example. And so that was really interesting to us because, you know, but when mentioned the beginning, like we met as music editors, we met as writers. So we're always thinking about narrative. We're always thinking about stories. And we just bonded over, like, like, for when I said, our love for culture, for art, and also our shared rage and anger, and like how infuriating it is to be part of a misrepresented group and be labeled as unworthy. And we saw so many people around us who were so dope and doing such amazing things who were also women of color or BIPOC folks, et cetera. And we were like, how come we're not getting the shine and elevation that? we need? How come those people aren't getting that shine elevation? Well, how can we be a platform? How can we elevate
0: that? And I heard so many like common traits throughout that story as you both sort of trace how you came together. And what really struck me beyond the reading of the bios and then it's reinforced by what you both shared is there's a unconventional nature to both of your paths and now your collective path. But it seems like that unconventional, what people would call unconventional, I'm using imperfectly to describe your coming together is only in relation to the uniformity of the status quo.
1: Mm.
0: And so how do all of those different parts of both of you individually and then how you've come together, how does that help or aid in your design process as we start to get into now thinking about the design because I want to you know you spend a lot of time thinking about that and I want to do the same and Mm. spend some time talking about the meaning and the kind of rigor that goes into rethinking some of these processes but let's start first with that unconventional so-called unconventional part John Mm. (laughs) see I almost forgot to do it in that time
1: (laughs) (laughs) can you ask the question again because I want to make sure I'm clear.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Like I'll try to make, I ramble when I ask questions. That's like, okay? It's a talent. So people tell me, cause they always <laughs> love people. Um The backgrounds, I think to the status quo would appear unconventional, but that's the way I'm reading it is what provides the strength. Mm. It provides you the perspective, like give me a sense of how that has become part of your rethinking of the design process. Tighter, a- tighter way of asking. Mm.
1: That's a really good question and thanks for saying that because I hadn't thought about it in that way before. I'll get granular for a second. I'm sure Boy Wayne has something, has things to add, but I really feel like, this is also because I'm really passionate about it, about like curriculum design. And that really comes out in like how we design our actual courses that were leading to teams and folks, within tech and media companies when it comes to like our corporate leg of our work. And there's so many ways to learn. Like there is so, this, what we're talking about, when we're talking about racism in design and how racial inequities are replicated and how like the thinking becomes part of the process and the process creates these outcomes that are harmful. Like all of that, there's so many ways to talk about that. There's so many ways to address that. It's so complex, it is so deep, it is so profound. And so the kind of like unconventional or quirkiness of how we approach it is like really bringing in many elements. Like we know when it becomes really metal, we know when we're designing our courses that we have to come at it from different angles. So there's media that we're bringing in. We're bringing in historical references. We're bringing in personal storytelling and we're bringing in group storytelling. We're bringing in interactive activities. We're bringing in reflection. We're bringing in paired activities we're bringing in case studies like we're bringing in all of these different pieces to create a transformative experience where folks can really start to reflect and think deeply and really start to think about how could we recreate a process so that it's equitable and none of that is easy They're really complex questions, like there's no easy answer to it. Sometimes you create something and then you create a new problem, or sometimes you're just left with new questions. And we think that's like really critical. Something that I'll say, oh man, this person focuses on inclusive design in terms of accessibility and they're um, a disabled person. And like one of the things that they say about their own framework is that it's not about like a solution. It's about design questioning, like thinking of new questions to ask. And we take a really similar approach because you have new questions and you have new conversations. And what we see in industries that are like creating a lot of insidious media or tech, it's like there's no new questions being asked and new systems being created and new mindsets being implanted, like that's not happening or it's not happening at mass. So yeah, I'll say that that's where the kind of unconventional pieces come in. It's like really like, how are we delivering this? Are we thinking about different types of learners? Are we thinking about who's going to be in the room? And also to be quite frank, if we're running sessions with tech and media companies, they're mostly white folks in the room. That's just the nature of those industries because of exclusion and systemic racism and all these other things that we know about in classism and who has the right credentials and it's like all of those things so we really center like if there are BIPOC in the room do they feel taken care of are their voices heard are we supporting them are we centering them because if we're taking care of them actually everyone will be taken care of anything to add
2: yeah I think I'll answered that maybe a little bit differently, which is that nothing about who we are is arbitrary and nothing about our framework is unrelated to who we are, right? So it's like similar to what Jahan was saying. And that brings us into our framework, which is our first phase of our framework is about looking at who we are. And so as a designer, and as Jahan said, everybody is a designer, right? So everybody has an identity. Everybody has identities that inform how they not only view the world, but how they approach the world and interact and engage in the world. And so before we dive into how are we going to solve this problem? How might we da-da-da-da-da, right? Like That's how designers in design school are taught and trained to start the process. We ask, well, who the hell are we? And we look at all of the things, right? So it's like our race or a gender or class, like all of the obvious things, but it's also maybe you went, I don't know, on some sort of um, a nature trip solo for three nights, which is something that I personally did in high school. And that has me look at the world in a certain kind of way. And that has me consider things that other people might not consider and so when we're talking about like conventional versus unconventional, or whatever that even is, once you start to really dive into people's experiences, everybody's unconventional. Everybody has all this, these myriad experiences that maybe don't have a place at work. They don't have a place inside of the organization. But once we bring that to light, it's like, oh, that person actually has proximity to the issue that we're solving for. And maybe they're better suited to be working on this project than somebody who just has the title that aligns with that. You know what I'm saying? So I think that we really bring that through to the people that we're engaging in our trainings because we want them to name the things that they're afraid to name, which is how does your race actually inform the way that you're approaching who you think you're solving this problem for? who you were designing for, right? And then within that, it's like, what are the power dynamics there? And our whole core of our work is about co-design. Code so how do we develop relational contexts as we approach building things, right?
0: And the kind of, as you both were kind of sharing your reflections on the unconventional versus conventional. And I'm always, when I enter into these conversations, I always think about how the language that we have is by nature imperfect language. Like it's, mm-hmm. it's already coming. Like even a term like unconventional can sound like it has judgment, which is why I, I tried imperfectly to try to juxtapose it merely against this perceived status quo. Right. It's not one being better or worse or less than than the other, but it is most people wouldn't look at a resume and say, oh, they're doing this, not specifically your resumes but any resume. Right. And that's part of the challenge that we have, right? To break through these clusters of credential, so mm-hmm. to speak, particularly when faced with imperfect language. so what I jotted down real quick is this idea of neutrality because it, a lot of design, a lot of ethnography presumes neutrality. A lot of our systems presume neutrality. Facebook would say, Well, we're just a platform. We don't make the people racist. They just find their way to racism and we manifest that, or they won't actually say that. (laughs) But, you know, (laughs) yeah, whatever the, the situation is. And a lot of folks who do this type of work will presume neutrality. And it sounds to me through the process and steer me in another direction, if I'm not reading it right, is that the asking of the pointed question of who the hell we are in the room breaks through that sort of fourth wall of neutrality so boy when i'm going to start with you is am i reading that right have you both thought about neutrality in that way or or how people are coming into these rooms as you do these exercises
2: well, these aren't terms that we normally speak of, but as you describe it that way, I'm like, that's dope. (laughs) We're going to steal that because that's exactly what it is. Right? So we don't start with a thing. We start with who's building the thing always. And it's astounding that people are not having that conversation. And I forget if we already mentioned this to you, but we were teaching this class. Oh no, Johan told the story earlier. We were teaching this class at NYU. So, you know. These hoity-toity students with access to be able to go to NYU—we know it's a prestigious, expensive school, right? But there's still dynamics within that. And so when we get into the classroom, we're teaching our course on design for diversity, and it's mostly people of color who opt into this class. It wasn't basically wasn't elective, right? It wasn't mandatory. So we step into the class, and it's mostly women of color, international students, very few cis men very few white folks, and once we were going through this course, these students were pissed. They were so upset because they're like, why is this, why are we just getting this course now? Why is this not mandatory? Why are the people who really need to be in this course not in this course? And those are dominant culture folks who are going to be getting these six-figure jobs at the Facebooks and the Googles and the whatever have you, and they are not critically thinking about who are we as designers, right? And so it's not arbitrary that that's phase one in our framework. And our framework, as Jahan said, is not a solution. It's not a solve. It's a wayfinding tool. It's for us to place where we need to start looking at the questions that we need to start asking in order to center racial equity in how it is that we approach building things. But I loved how you said that. It is like breaking through that fourth wall. And it's true, there is no neutrality in the things that we build. And that's another piece of our work is like, how do we get to the root cause? And you can't get to a root cause without having context, without having history, without having really like looking at the what so beyond just the thing that you're building. What are all the other things around it that have
1: led us to this point? John? I was just thinking, we are a firm believer in citing people in our work. I can Mm -hmm. already see a quote coming from you. that we're about to cite you in our presentation uh, during our our sessions. And actually that is also a part of racial equity work is like giving credit where credit is due. I do want to point out that, you know, a lot of what we talk about is really participatory design and co-design and we didn't make that up. And there's actually a lot of, you know, different cultures. There's different ways of relating to folks where like, this is not brand new. And there are plenty of folks in like the educational field, for example, that have really kind of taken on participatory design. The thing is that it's really new when it comes to like corporate tech media folks. It's really like, oh, oh, wow, this is really new, but it's not new per se. You know what I mean? So there are tons of great thinkers and folks that we've also been inspired by that we credit and cite in our work. And I say that because we're part of a lineage of people and community of people who believe in designing with not for. And it doesn't also mean that we have not done that before or that like we've made mistakes or had our own challenges. Like we practice the tools, the relational and strategic tools that we ask clients to practice. Like we have to practice them too. And so it's, a worthwhile endeavor because then when we have a challenge or we're up against something or we have a breakthrough, we can share that with our community and with our clients.
0: And when you guys were, thank you for the credit, by the way, but don't, you know, this is y'all conversation, not my conversation, but always happy for a byline. But I think the point you're making is actually really important because I think all of us have been in the quote unquote room, the metaphysical room, where work is being credited, that we know somebody else did that work and other people in the room are kind of, either by their silence or by the kind of go along are kind of taking credit for that work. So I'm, I'm a big believer in quote unquote credit, not germane to our exchange right now, but just <laughs> as, a, as a general concept. But I think about the invisibility of, of that concept because so much of what happens in the type of participatory design and the issues of, of inclusivity that naturally come up in work like this is what I would think of as, it happens almost invisibly in a way. And how do you think through the questions you ask, the process you put in place, making? the invisible visible. Because I think, boy, when you mentioned that when you're in this room, maybe, I don't know, I can't remember who said it, but that you're in this room, there could be like maybe one person of color in the room, right? Oftentimes to the larger forces, that person is invisible. I speak it for myself. I've definitely felt that way. Even just waiting for to get my table at a restaurant and somebody just blows right by me. And I'm like, motherfucker, you knew there's a line here. Like... (laughs) Am I yeah. I'm a six foot tall, black dude. Like you saw me, but they didn't, right? Mm. Like they didn't, mm. right? Like I'm waiting for my table too, asshole. But anyway, mm-hmm. <laughs> invisibility. Mm-hmm. Like, how do you think through that process as you're thinking through these things, making the invisible visible? and i think i'm starting with you Boywin, i think
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah big question so all of our work is to make the invisible visible it's also going back to what you're saying about there's no neutrality that that also is invisible nobody's talking about that that it's just assumed right here's a tech product it's neutral here's a you know an example that we use all the time is when you go into an airport bathroom and you're trying to wash your hands at the sink and the sensor doesn't pick up melanin right and it's like what the hell is happening here so that's not neutral so everything that we're doing our approach to that is just picking out things that are relatable like a sink you're going to use a sink we use a video that illustrates how um kodak right their color sensors and the way that they approached creating film basically made black people invisible and only picked up light-skinned people in their film, that's not neutral either, right? So all of those things are just things that people assume in their day to day. Well, that's just how it is. Or tech is just neutral or whatever it is. And it's through every little detail in our trainings that we have people discover how not neutral it is, or how not arbitrary it is, even if it is subconscious, right? Or when people say, It wasn't meant, the intention wasn't that, but it ended up that way. We have people looking at it to see that even if it wasn't intended that way, there were core decisions from a root. And the root is the design system of white supremacy, which we'll send you an article speaking of properly attributing credits where credit is due. I forget the dude's name now, but he's a designer, black designer based out of the Bay Area who wrote this article that we use in a a lot of our trainings. That talks about this idea of design systems and designers who have the title design and they're at work or whatever, they know what a design system is. That's what they train in. So if you look at this system of design, you're looking at things like language, which we already talked about, right? We're looking at imagery, which if you just look at an image, it doesn't necessarily mean anything, but the meaning that's assigned to it, right? All of these things we talked about culture, right? All of these things are assigned certain meaning and all of the amalgamation of that is the design system. And so if we were to look at it from a very high level of everything that we do is within this design system called white supremacy. And let's break down what that actually is, right? Where the things that are designed have white people win more than everybody else. That's the system. That's what it's built to do. Then every little piece of minutiae in their people's day-to-day lives, how they're working, the things that they're building, you can see how that through line works all the way through. And we have people discover that.
0: And how is that perceived? Because when you've never been confronted with this, and I think about the reference you made to the class, the class that Teacher at NYU not being mandatory, Right. And as you were describing it, I jotted down here because I'm always like looking to the side and adding questions to the notes. I have lots of notes, by the way. I didn't show you guys, but there's like.
1: Well, dang. I know. Cover here. I want to see those <laughs> after. <laughs>
0: and so I'm always adding and adding as the conversation goes on. And, and I made a little note, like, shouldn't this class be mandatory? And <laughs> And the reason why I kind of thought about it is we all come into these places, again, the metaphysical place from different experiences. One of the things that was, that we both, all of us have cited in this conversation. And some folks not letting anybody off the hook, the first time they're confronted with these issues in the way in which it sounds like they're being laid out could be in a class like yours, right? Or, you know, I went to Howard for undergrad. So even when I talk to friends that they're black, but they went to predominantly white institutions. They're like, I don't know what you're talking about. And I'm like, didn't you have black diaspora? And they're like, nope, wouldn't the class, <laughs> right? Like, that's mandatory class. Freshman year, Howard University, everybody's got to take black diaspora one or two, and they got to take intro to African-American history one and two, mm.
1: you know? Wow. So
0: you're not saying that everybody coming out of Howard is like Malcolm Farrakhan, but I'm just saying that like they kind of have a grounding. <laughs> right, right.
2: A grounding. So sure.
0: I sell that to say, and Jahan, I'm going to start with you for this one. Like, when people don't know and they've been reinforced with this mythology, because to me, white supremacy is a mythology, mm-hmm. right? It's what a powerful think? operating mythology mm-hmm. of how to see the world.
1: Mm-hmm. And it
0: infects everybody,
1: mm-hmm.
0: Black and white. Like someone like Kanye, he's suffering from an overdose of white supremacy. That dude thinks white people's ice is colder. Right, and that's why he's an asshole. But Bro, that's nonetheless, a whole other, that's a whole other podcast, whole other conversation. Right? <laughs> We're not doing the Kanye West is an asshole episode. But when folks don't know and they're coming into these situations, like how are they confronted with that and processing it? And like I said, John, I want to start with you for this one.
1: Yeah. Well, first of all, what you said uh, made me think of like European history as a major, or not a major, is like this is a mandatory course. And then African studies is an elective. It's the same type of thinking. I'm of the belief that all you got to do is take a course on Toni Morrison and James Baldwin, and you'll have enough information and insight into the Black American experience. I mean, to dive deep into that for years. So, yeah, those things should be mandatory because you're right, it is myth, it's complete. Myth making and mythology, and it's a pathology too. You know, it's an illness. So we are interrupting that when we're bringing that, especially to corporate clients. Like this is tech and media; they're not talking about this at work. They might not even be talking about this in their home or with their friends or with their family. And now we're bringing this conversation here, and it's like, oh, you know. So sometimes it's like, oh, we only talking about racial equity what about gender? What about this? Or sometimes it's like pushback or challenging. Most of the time it's introspective and reflective. And it's because of the way we're sharing the information. And it's because of the way we're asking people to engage. And like, we're inviting them in to do so. Like that is our secret sauce it's like how it's being delivered because it's like, we can go back and forth on like a bunch of things, but we just shared with you this piece of media around Kodak that is based in fact, this is what happened. And if I just take the morality out of it for this moment and we're not, I'm not neutral at all. No one on our team is neutral. We have strong opinions. We share those opinions, but if we're like passing it back to them, like, what do you think about that? How did that land for you? What did you see? Where are you at right now? And, you know, someone is like, well, I think this and someone else, you know, what do you all think about what so-and-so just shared? Like, I think one thing we've learned and that we're still learning, I'm still learning for sure, as like facilitators or teachers is like, actually let them do the work. Let them put in the rigor of like feeling discomfort or angry or questioning or whatever. Like we can be with all of those things. But, you know, to be honest, in college, I would definitely be someone who'd be like, F y'all, I'm going to go off right now and you're going to see why this is wrong. And I actually don't think there's anything, I'm not saying that's wrong or like that's a bad approach. People have their own forms of expression. But for me, that wasn't effective because I wasn't being like heard. And so with corporate clients, it's like, this is just what it is. I'm not going to argue with someone about redlining. (laughs) You know what I mean? It's like. The facts are here. The history is here. The data is here. We need to actually agree that that is actually true. Okay, we got that down. Okay, great. I'm not going to spend time going back and forth around that, but we can have conversations around the impact of that and what that means and how that relates to what we're talking about now. So I think that because we're able to listen, because we're able to be kind of powerful in our in our delivery, and because the shape the shape of the content and how it's delivered, it's kind of surprising how Or maybe it's not actually based on how we've designed it, it's actually not surprising. But people tend to be more open than you would think. I mean, this kind of goes, this is sort of like circling back. These aren't mandatory, a lot of our courses. So the people that are coming or the people that are like, I care about this, I want to be here. I'm sure if it wasn't that way, we'd probably have be saying something different right now.
0: And you know, I'm gonna. Shift a little bit more to the process. And boy, when I'm going to start with you here, when we have a design process that has worked the way it has by and large worked since design thinking has sort of become, let's call it, commoditized, popularized, whatever the language is, right? There was a time when these processes weren't as in vogue, and now they are, right? And now there's folks like yourselves that are. Pushing back on, let's call that status quo, right? So, what do we lose in a design process that is by its nature not factoring in the type of complexity that you've both described? Whether it's white supremacy, systemic racism, all the isms that exist that make up the way in which we move in the world as sentient beings. When a design process for years, by and large, has not centered those things, what do we lose in that process? Like, what is the risk when that behavior continues as we like look out into the future?
2: Well, we lose efficacy because <laughs> it ain't working for most of us, right? And it's just going to yield the same results. And so that's what we're interrupting is that doesn't work for the majority of people, It doesn't center anyone except for dominant culture. And so our work is, again, to make the invisible visible by saying there is a dominant culture. Then there are misrepresented people and we're actually the majority. And if we were centered and here are all these examples of how things where we were at the helm and we headed and were centered in the process, it actually yielded better results for every single other person, right? So the loss is huge. And we're not the type of business that quite frankly gives a shit about convincing people of the business case of why you need to do this or even the morality. It's just about efficacy. Is it gonna work for the future that we're moving into? And if the future is not designed for all, then we're going to keep on having the same shit happen over and over and over again. And right now we're in the middle of a climate crisis. We're in COVID. All this stuff is happening right now. It's not going to go away anytime soon. It's only going to accelerate, right? And so because we've been at the brunt, people like us have been at the brunt of these issues, and we've seen how they've played out. If we were creating the solutions, we wouldn't be in this mess.
0: Jahan, you're nodding. So does that mean you're you're adding or you're just giving a thumbs up?
1: Well, I was just... Kind of the the last question you asked and also thinking about what Wen was saying. I want to add also that when we're working with corporations, we're under no illusion that we're going to go in and leadership is going to say, hey, you know what? I'm relinquishing all my power. And all of a sudden, like the whole system's going to change overnight. Like that's not it. But what we do know is like we're activating people. We want to start like a kindling. It's like you want to start a fire because more and more in mass, people in companies that are like, no, wait a minute, wait, wait, wait. The more people that are start, start to push back, like things can start to shift. It's really tricky because these corporations are like their own animals. But I just wanted to point that out. And I, the thing that I was nodding also to what Boy when was saying is that part of our other focus, and this isn't like an ancillary focus, it's actually the core and the heart of our work is to really focus on, we say misrepresented instead of marginalized, but misrepresented or BIPOC, you know, creators, technologists, designers, et cetera, like that are creating projects, content, services, etc. that are pushing forward new futures because we need as many people that look like us who have an equity lens creating, like that's actually what we need and we need it in mass. And so future, very soon future offerings are also going to be really focused on supporting mm-hmm those communities in the ways that we need it, because there's only so much corporations can do, but actually what's really energizing and enlivening are individual folks who are doing great work and they need support and they need team and they need funding and they need a lot of things and they're invested. So how do we support those folks so that we're not saying, Hey, don't do this. And instead we're saying, it's great what you're doing. Let's, support you on that you can keep doing it because that's powerful it's powerful
2: yeah there's also just a huge energetic shift from mitigating harm which is essentially what our work is in companies that's the best we can do in that space and that's cool it's important but for us what's powerful is creating liberatory futures and so The conversation that we're having internally as a team is like, how do we stop talking about racism altogether? Right. Like, that's anti racism work where you have to talk about racism all the time versus we know what these realities are and we're building something greater together. Right. We acknowledge what's so and we're just in the space of creativity. Like, that's just so much more dope for us. So, that's a shift that we're making.
0: Yeah. And that sounds like one, a really prescient and important shift to be undergoing. And I think I being somewhat hopeful, that's, I think these are shifts that we should all be doing in our work, right? We should all be evolving and thinking about things differently and challenging ourselves, particularly when we're in service to what I and many others call like viable futures, right? Plural, that there's other ways in which all of this can, can and should operate. And that thinking about it that way kind of makes me reflect on the initial answer of efficacy because I'm curious as to both your thoughts on, like we all know the business case for things, right? Like oftentimes the business case is uh, somewhat framed in an argument around efficacy, right? That your business will be more successful if you do this and blah, blah, blah. And that's argued in like climate change, that's argued in diversity, quote unquote diversity. And all that kind of stuff. And one of the things I wrote in an essay, I think at the beginning of the, this year, maybe last year, was that I'm not doing business case anymore, right? Because business case for things is often not the best case, right? Like there was once a business case for putting us in the bottom of ships, right? That was an awesome business case, right? And it made a lot of economic sense. So I'm not really going to argue things on a business case basis, but I'm saying all that to kind of set up the question, which is in a system that is, powered by white supremacy, framed by capitalism, there's acceptable losses, right? Like everybody kind of knows. And in a capitalist system, there's so much factory work that's gonna just be lost. There's gonna be so much of this that's not gonna work and all the rest of it. So I wonder, a lot of these folks really care about what's most effective. It, it, It reminds me of different times when I've done a lot of work marketing and advertising, where they were like, "Oh yeah, we're advertising at the Super Bowl. Everybody watches that, so I don't need to specifically talk to African Americans or Latinos or Asian, right? Like general market became the default to really talking to white folks, and everyone watches Mash, right, or whatever." <laughs> <laughs> dating myself with these shows,
1: <laughs> but I remember that whole theme song. It's like, yeah, I can't forget it. <laughs> yeah,
0: that that theme song was my signal to turn the channel. Because I, I totally hated
1: It's that. so depressing. Funny. It's the most depressing theme song. It's I also like hated the most syndicated
2: that. show for some reason. It was like, was always
1: odd. Anyway, it was. That's so funny. Totally changed MASH was my signal
0: to like, is different or something? Is there like a different show? <laughs> totally. It was just... As much as people make fun of Friends as like one of the whitest shows ever, I'm like the whitest show ever is MASH. It's so (laughs) true. There is no show more white in the entire history of TV than MASH. I don't know. Great. No black person that likes MASH. None. Zero. Zilch.
2: If a Gen Zer listens to this, they'll be like, "What's mash? Yeah,
0: what the fuck is a mash? <laughs> and
2: also, right? what's
1: different strokes? Just, <laughs> right, right? What's a TV set? What well, they was right,
0: missing right, out. Right.
1: Okay, that was my show. Different. They strokes.
0: might even start with like, "What's changing a channel? Right? <laughs> right. Like Turning a <laughs> dial to change a channel. They're like, "What the hell is that? <laughs> right? Exactly. <laughs> but do they care about efficacy? <laughs> do, do you think that matters as we kind of full circle it back?
2: I guess it depends on who you're asking that of, right? It's like, if we ask a company, do they care about efficacy outside of the business case? We know what they're going to say, right? But it's like, that's the other thing that we're attuning ourselves to more and more in our work is like, we actually don't really care about the corporations. We care about the people inside of them that care about what we're talking about, right? And those folks, they do care about efficacy, And so the other side of efficacy or like breaking that down, unpacking that a little bit is like, what do we mean by efficacy? And centered in our work is like, are people better off? Are misrepresented people, are Black people, are BIPOC, are uh, people who are misrepresented better off? And that just depends on what community you're speaking to and how they define that on their own terms, right? And it could have something to do with money, right? Like finances could be a success metric, For somebody. And for somebody else, it's more about emotional health or whatever have you. So that's what efficacy looks like for us. And again, it's like our job is not to go into a company and consult and have them create the thing that creates that efficacy, but we have them discover there are many different ways to look at efficacy. And the designers do what they do with that.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm keeping an eye on the time because I promised to get you guys out of here in a in a decent amount of time. And we have two segments the show we end off the dome and the drop. But before we get to that, I want to talk a little bit about storytelling and metaphors. And there's such richness in the way you both have framed these stories. And I want to give you an opportunity to talk about how you see these more viable futures as it pertains to the stories we tell each other, the language that we use. Language has come up already in this conversation. It's the definitions, how we define things. I'm touching on a lot of different things, but what I really want to get to the core of is the future we want to make, the future we want to design, put design in there as center. How do you tell different stories in order to get to that future? And Jahan, I'm going to start with you. And then after that, we're going to get to off the dome in the drop. So easy question. This is a no-brainer.
1: <laughs> this is Jahan's area. So perfect. Okay. Can I illustrate my answer with a story? I think this would be a roundabout way of answering this. Or this is my roundabout
0: sounds like my question. So okay, go for it.
1: All right, good. So I'm gonna take it and run with it, but when's heard this many times? And actually, I will say that we're working with a client right now and we actually opened up our session with this story. It was the first time that we did this, and it was profound. Okay. This was a story that was shared with us. It's like, I love it so much. We were speaking with this Nigerian designer. He's from Lagos. He's in the city. He was telling us about this rural village that was outside of the city. And he says, okay, so here's the story. There's a small village and there's no water pump in the village. And so the women had to walk two miles back and forth to get the water. So this designer comes in and the designer is tasked with solving, quote unquote, this problem. And the solution they came up with was to build this water pump right in the village that these women wouldn't have to walk. And that makes sense. If you think about, oh, this is a problem to be solved. That makes sense. However, it didn't solve the problem. And it created new challenges because the short of it is that what was discovered was there was a high level of abuse happening in this village. A lot of the women were being abused by their partners. And so these walks served as their time to bond with one another. And it was their space to commiserate and to be together, to be in community, to be in relationship with one another. And so bringing the water pump closer to the village or in the village did not solve the challenge. It didn't get to the root of the problem. And the root of the problem is not the water pump. The root is abuse. And then now the design question changes from how do we get water to this village to how do we deal with or how do we address the abuse that's happening in this community? And you know, when I tell that story, it's like people's reactions, it's like, oh my God, can you believe they didn't even ask the women what they wanted, what they needed? But I push back on that response. I mean, that wasn't my response also initially, but I push back on it to myself and to everyone else because that's what we do. I've done that so many times. We do that so many times. We're trained to do that. We're trained to just think about ourselves. Like that's what we've inherited. That is actually part of white dominant culture thinking and no one is immune to it. And as you said, Philip, it actually hurts all of us. So I tell that story to say that a new story would be that we've actually started to retrain ourselves to be like, wait a minute, how do we design with this community? And it's really going to take something. It would take building a relationship. It would take building trust. It would take more time. It would take more effort. It would take more rigor. You'd have to humble yourself. You'd probably make mistakes. Like it would take all of that. But what you come up with is going to be much richer and at least reflect the complexity of the challenge and a one, two, three solution that could cause more harm. So I think that that's what we're interested in is if new stories are created that take on a different way of thinking about these challenges like that's radical because that's not our default. Mm-hmm.
0: I think that's a that's a perfect way to think about it. I mean it it is a very profound thing to share that there's often a lot of stuff going on underneath the surface, right? We get to that those elements of invisibility and communities build solace in in different ways. Right? And you remove those ways and then oftentimes there's what they use in the military concept blowback right things mm. ha- un so-called unforeseen things happen i think about um the negro leagues right like
1: mm. every-
0: everybody's kind of for integration of baseball right but think about all the businesses that were supported by the Negro Leagues, you know, not arguing Mm. for segregation, right? Like I'm not making that case, but I am making a case that perhaps there was a different way to do that. Like right off the Negro Leagues just became a part of the major leagues, right? In a different Mm. ownership, equity, all kinds of stuff. But anyway, not there to talk about baseball. We are there to get to off the dome and the drop. (laughs) And the off the dome is very simple. It's just, in my case, this case, three, kind of first thing that comes to mind. And so just to keep it orderly. I'm going to start with Boyan. I'm going to start with you. And then both of you have the answer though. So you're not off the hook. There's not an either or. Um, well, these are good questions because one of them is actually one I've asked before, but I haven't answered in a while. And I started getting notes from listeners saying like, you haven't asked this question in a while. So I'm going to resurface it here. So if you could, would you rather go back in time and visit your ancestors or go to the future and visit your descendants?
2: Damn, probably ancestors. Do I have to qualify? Do I have to say why?
0: You can, if you want, it's free to expound.
2: (laughs) Yeah. I'm just a little bit, even though we talk about futurism all the time and that's, the core of our work. It's also, I'm a little bit afraid. I'm a little bit afraid of what the future of this globe is going to look like. Even though if I go back to my ancestors, they live some hard ass lives. So that's going to be a little bit challenging to see too, but there's context, right? There's like that context that I think will help just close a lot of the
1: gaps that I have.
0: Absolutely. John, yours?
1: You know what? I have no kids. Okay. So I don't think I need to go into the future. I'm a proud auntie. I love them so much, but my husband and I are happy being auntie and uncle. So I'm going to say, I'm going to go back. Okay. um, Because I think it's really powerful to know where you come from.
0: Absolutely.
1: I think it totally impacts you in the present and in the future. So I would choose that. Yeah. And uh, and also like when, like what would my decision be? Like a microchip? Just some like robot? (laughs) Right.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I love the question myself. It's a great question. People kind of came in and were like, what's going on with that one? So I tried to switch it up, but I I wanted to bring that one back. So the second one is, and I'm going to start with you, Jahan, for this one. If you can have any fictional character as a friend, who would it be?
1: I mean, this is obvious. I'm just going to just like my knee-jerk reaction is Issa Rae. Because come on. Like who would not want to be friends with her? Then again, her character on Insecure. Yeah, definitely Molly doesn't want to. But maybe I just mean Issa Ray the person, but that's not fictional because she's an actual human being. So I, I think so, yeah. I just love her. I love her.
0: Yeah. So you want to be friends with Issa from Insecure? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Mm.
2: This, yeah, this is a hard one, but if, uh, I'm just going to think about my, my childhood, and obviously I was obsessed with the Cosby show, even though we can never watch it ever again, because, <laughs> right, but Denise Huxtable, she just had like, she was just so damn cool and had the best friends that she hung out with and like the cutest boys that she hung out with and like the fashion and all that kind of stuff it was in New York and I grew up in the country and so when I was watching that growing up I was like oh I want to live in New York I want to go to Brooklyn which I did then later in life so that would be my answer
0: great answers great answers you can't go wrong with Denise Huxtable right yeah exactly could you imagine that brunch you guys could have like go out with Issa, Denise Huxtable (laughs) and the two of you at brunch
1: (laughs) I mean, it's a natural, it's a natural pairing.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Could you imagine? (laughs) I just (laughs) want to see it recorded. I just want to hear that conversation. Right? (laughs) And the final off the dome, and Boyfriend, I'm going to start with you. If you can only keep one appliance in your home, what would that be?
2: Vitamix, so easy. Listen, I make (laughs) smoothies like every other day, at least, if not every single day. So it's very
1: versatile. It'll be my Vitamix.
0: Okay. Jahan, you're up.
1: I have a similar answer because my in laws just gifted us a ninja, and I had kind of a more like a busted regular blender, which I loved. It was fine. But that <laughs> ninja is no joke. No <laughs> joke. I was like, wow, so that's another level.
0: Well, this episode is not brought to you by the blending lobby, <laughs> the juicer lobby, but somehow we've landed in that space. So but this both. this
2: might be a battle, though, right? Vitamix versus Ninja. <laughs> oh, yeah, a exactly. whole other story. Okay,
1: anyway, a, whole, a partnership is a sponsorship. Exactly. Deep dive is in the works.
0: Exactly, we we could, we could make that happen. That's actually not a bad <laughs> idea, right? Like a, a new versus Vitamix. <laughs> Your listeners would be like, "What in the hell?" Yeah, Vitamix versus Ninja, right? (laughs) The the best, the top ten hits. (laughs) Awesome questions, and so the drop, and the the drop is just an opportunity for all of us to share anything at all that we think the listeners of the show should be into. So, to make it easy, I'm going to do my drop first, and then Jahan, I'm going to go to you, and then Boyan, I'm going to go to you. All right. So, in for ease of execution, and my drop is a book called uh, Metaphors We Live By and it's by George Lakoff and Mark Johnson. And it's a book really based around storytelling, communications, like 90s book, but it's one that I continuously go back to. And it's kind of recently surfaced just because I'm thinking about like 2022 and working on some stuff and just kind of pulled it off the shelf and started going through it. And I was like, this book's been pretty useful to me. So let me lead with that. So that's my drop. Jahan, Mm -hmm. you're up.
1: Okay, I thought about this because you said you were going to ask this question. This book, it's called Luster and it's by Raven Lilani. And I just finished it and I loved it. I just really loved it. Highly recommend it. It's about this millennial young black woman who ends up having an affair with this married white man who's a lot older than her. And then she moves in with him and his wife. And even though that sounds scandalous, it's not actually really about that. It's really more about, like, class and race and loneliness and people. And it's just really, it was, like, interesting and and just really, really well written.
0: Okay. This sounds great. I'm sure HBO is licensing that even as we speak. Definitely. Right. No,
1: that <laughs> sounds like. Produced by Issa Rae.
0: Exactly. That sounds like the exact thing that they'll, they'll want to do and they'll cast like nicole kidman to stand there as like a wax <laughs> wax model
2: <laughs> oh that's amazing i i know right but i might watch that my drop is so my husband recently put me on to omar s so this is a nod to you philip since you're a dj omar s who's a black detroit based techno and house producer and he's the shit and I've heard his stuff before but now I'm like going through his discography and I just need a little bit of that bass right now so highly highly recommend it puts me in the mood great workout music but I just like put it on while I'm driving around and stuff
0: oh awesome awesome Two all drops are good drops and those sound like amazing drops you know I, I've I appreciate you guys taking the time to think about them and I appreciate both of you being on the deep dive with me. This was exactly the kind of conversation I think I needed in this moment. And so Jahan, Boyan, thank you both for being on the show and look forward for us all staying in touch.
1: Thank Thank you. Thank you so much. Great.
0: You can listen to the deep dive via Apple Podcasts and our website, thedeepdivepod.com. Download, subscribe, listen, and share. If you like what you're hearing and enjoy what me and the team are putting together, then leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. You can follow me on Twitter via Phil To all my listeners, wherever you are in the world, I thank you. See you on the other side.